1 Samuel 3 is probably a story that you maybe perhaps haven't heard a sermon from since you were in Sunday school. Uh, I remember uh, in my own Sunday schools, this was one of the most famous stories with the flannel graph lessons, you know. And uh, hearing Samuel's call uh, as he kept, keeps running over to Eli and saying, here am I. Uh, it's a wonderful story, but there's some really profound truths that I think that are in this passage that uh, speak to us exactly where we are here this morning in 2021. One of the saddest verses, though, in all of the Bible is actually found in a verse immediately preceding our text this morning. If you go to the end of Judges, uh, go to Judges chapter 21. It's the last verse of Judges as is a, a verse that sort of caps off the age of the Judges here in the history of Israel. And this verse is, uh, immediately precedes our context in 1 Samuel, both historically and chronologically. But this is a verse which describes the state of affairs in Israel. And as you will see as I read, it's a verse that doesn't have much in the way of hope. Listen, it says in verse 25, In those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. It's a very ominous, a very foreboding way to end the book of the Judges. A book which is filled with all sorts of sordid stories of people not doing the will of God, not following the ways of God. And now you have Israel, once united, are now separate in multiple different camps, multiple perhaps different uh, confederations. They are divided, uh, they are leaderless, they are listless, they are lost, they are, as it says here, they are self-interested. This is Israel, the people of God, and their future didn't have very much in, in any of the way of, of, of hope. Their future wasn't anything in the way of bright. They were leaderless. <laughs> they were lost. Their condition was pitiful. They were spiritually blind, blind, they were politically divided, and they were economically deficient. This is the state of affairs. It might sound familiar. <laughs> Might sound all too familiar in a lot of ways, but that's the backdrop for First Samuel three, which we are given a hint at in the first verse. Go to if you're hopefully you're still there. First Samuel three verse one. The historian is here writing. He says, "In the child." Samuel ministered unto the Lord before Eli, and the word of the Lord was precious in those days. There was no open vision. Yeah, that word "precious" is a bit misleading. A better word as it was translated in Pastor Nathan's translation, which is rare. It's the word of the Lord was rare. It was uncommon. It was infrequently spoken. It was unfamiliar with the people of God. The word of God had become a thing of the past. God's voice had become sort of a tired tradition. Something that was all but forgotten in their day and age. No wonder Israel was so crestfallen. No wonder Israel was in such a sad state of affairs. Because God's word had been relegated to the darkness. Had been relegated to those corners of the room that had uh, accumulated cobwebs. It was precious in that sense. It was rare. It was uh, not frequently uh, visited by the people of God. Therefore it had no bearing on their present experiences. It had no bearing on their present life. God's word was rare. That phrase too, at the end of verse 1, no open vision, sort of carries the same weight, the same effect. 
Because uh, since earlier in the judges, the days of the judges, God's word had not been spoken through any prophet. There had been no prophecy for decades. God had seemingly gone silent. A devastating reality. And it would be right to say that that God was silent. But I think it would be even more accurate to say, uh, knowing what we know about Israel's state here in 1 Samuel 3, that it wasn't just that God was silent, but God's people had gone deaf. They had turned a deaf ear to the Lord who had delivered them out of Exodus and now here, or delivered them out of Egypt through the Exodus, and now here they are leaderless. They are lost. It had grown unmoved by the word of God, by that old ancient word and, and prophecy. They were no longer listening to it. They were no longer letting it affect and inform their daily lives. But as we just read from Judges 21, now they were doing whatever was right in their own eyes. Chaos and despair had taken over God's people. This is always the outcome when God's word is ignored and overlooked and disregarded. Despair will creep in and fester and flower. When that occurs, when God's word is ignored, when God's voice is is heard with deaf ears. We might say that Israel's spiritual sight had become dim. And I say that purposely because I think that's the underlying uh, sort of intent and implication of verses 1 and 2. Back in our text, 1 Samuel 3, notice again what it says. The historian writes, And the child Samuel ministered unto the Lord before Eli. And the word of the Lord was precious. It was rare. It was unfamiliar in those days. There was no open vision. And it came to pass at that time when Eli was laid down in his place. And his eyes began to wax dim that he could not see. Verse 2 ought to be a striking verse to us when we know the context of this setting. Precisely because I don't think the historian here who's recording these uh, incidences is not merely interested in us knowing how good Eli's eyesight was. He wasn't just including that detail so that we would know that he doesn't see very well. That his eyesight, as he says, has grown dim. This... I truly believe, is there to emphasize the state of affairs in Israel. They are led by a spiritually blind religious leader. No wonder their spiritual state was in such wretched affairs. That they were in such misery. There was no open vision. Not because God had disappeared, but because they had turned a blind eye and a deaf ear to the God who had delivered them. They had waxed worse and worse, we might say. Till now they were doing everything that was right in their own eyes because they were failing to be informed by the voice of God, by God's word. To be sure, this is the fault of the entire nation. But if you read this history, the fault ought to, rightly so, fall squarely on Eli's shoulders. Eli here is the high priest of Israel at this time. He is serving the Lord in the tabernacle at Shiloh. And he functions as this minister to the Lord and for the Lord during the end of the days of the judges. And now here he is at the sort of uh, the um, twilight of that age and looking forward to a new era. And though perhaps he was well-meaning, if you read a little bit, which we will in a second, his priesthood was 
Less than stellar, less than exemplary, less than upright. You see, in his old age, Eli turned most of his priestly duties over to his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Which turned out to be a really, <laughs> a really uh, bad misstep on the part of Eli. Because Hophni and Phinehas uh, had little to no regard for the things of God. <laughs> to be quite frank, they were little brats, <laughs> if I'm honest with you. And you can read the stories about them. They care less about the things of God. They were not surrendered to the Lord's ministry, to the Lord's will. They were not dedicated to the things of Jehovah. They were actually self-serving priests. Which is a contradiction in terms. A priest is one who is there to minister for the good of others. And here they are, they are priests who are serving themselves. They turned it upside down. You don't have to read the verses, but back in chapter 2, verses 12 through 17, it recounts some of, uh, some of the errors. Well, I'll just read it anyways. Chapter 2, verse 12. It says, Now the sons of Eli were the sons of Belial, which is a sort of euphemism for they were worthless sons. <laughs> they knew not the Lord. And the priest's custom with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant came while the flesh was in seething, when, with a flesh hook of three teeth in his hand, and he struck it into the pan, or kettle, or cauldrons, or pot, all that the flesh hook brought up, the priest took for himself. So that they did in Shiloh. Unto all the Israelites that came hither, also before they burned the fat, the priest's servant came and said to the man that sacrificed, Give flesh to the roast. For the priest, for he will not have sodden flesh of thee, but raw. And if any man said unto him, let them not fail to burn the fat presently, and then take as much as thy soul desireth, then he would answer them, Nay, but thou shalt give it to me now, and if not, I will take it by force. Wherefore the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord. For men abhorred the offering of the Lord. Here they're stealing sacrificial meats that were supposed to be offered only to Yahweh. They were stealing it. Right from the people who were offering it. And not just stealing it. They were taking it for themselves. And they wanted it raw so they could cook it a little bit better. (laughs) They were supposedly, according to the Levitical system of the priests, supposed to cook it a certain way in which it would be offered to the Lord. And here they were saying, no, give it to us raw so we can (laughs) cook it and eat it so it tastes a little bit better. Self-serving to the core. And if that weren't enough, jump down to verse 22. Now Eli was very old, it tells us, and heard all that his sons did unto all Israel. That his sons, or excuse me, and how they lay with the women that assembled at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. They were forcing themselves and having adulterous affairs with these who were volunteering at the doors of the tabernacle. Self-serving priests, seducing and taking for themselves all that they desired. (laughs) And all the while, Eli does next to nothing. In fact, all he does is just reprimand them pretty forcefully. Notice verse 23 of chapter 2. And he said unto them, Eli is, is saying this. Why do ye such things? For I hear of all your evil dealings by all this people. Nay, my sons, for it is no good report that I hear. Ye make the Lord's people to transgress. If one man sin against another, the judge shall judge him. But if a man sin against the Lord, who shall entreat for him? He's trying to do what he can to change the trajectory that his sons had taken here. But his sons could care less. 
Eli's words falls on deaf ears, unheeded. Notice at the end of verse 25, notwithstanding they hearkened not unto the voice of their father. Because the Lord would slay them. They disregarded their father's words. And this is the precise surroundings that we are in, in which we are introduced to this boy minister Samuel. Again, notice verse 1 of chapter 3. And the child Samuel ministered unto the Lord before Eli. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no open vision. No one was prophesying. And it came to pass at that time when Eli was laid down in his place and his eyes began to wax dim that he could not see. And but ere or, or before the lamp of God went out in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was and Samuel was laid down to sleep that the Lord called Samuel and he answered here am I. That's the context we have to have in mind when we hear these words of God to Samuel and Samuel back to God. The state of affairs is dismal. It's desperate. Israel is dispirited. They have nothing to do with God almost at all at this point. Such is why this call appears remarkable. Ere the lamp of God goes out just before Israel's spiritual senses are snuffed out completely. God speaks again. The Lord called Samuel. He's breaking through all of that spiritual deafness that had so described Israel for so long. And here he's calling a young boy. One who he would raise up to be his voice for his people. Who would fan the flames of hope and repentance and forgiveness in Israel once again. Who would bring to bear his word for his people. And it would be none other remarkably so than this child Samuel. Notice that contrast. In the middle of, of, of all of these adverse conditions, uh, spiritually, religiously, socially, economically, all of that, what is Samuel doing? It says in verse 1 again, And the child Samuel ministered unto the Lord. This is indicative of what he's been doing almost the entire time through these adverse conditions. Go back to chapter 2 verse 18. Notice what we find Samuel doing. Chapter 2 verse 18. But Samuel ministered before the Lord being a child girded with a linen ephod. It jumped down to verse 26. As all of this is going around. All the scandal. All of the hardship. All of the sort of noise that deafens the, the spiritual ears of Israel to the things of God. Notice what Samuel is here doing. And the child Samuel grew on. And was in favor both with the Lord and also with men. He's ministering. He's faithfully serving the Lord the best he knows how. A child. A child is serving the Lord. While the priest's sons and even the priest himself is just squandering away his position and privilege. Living for themselves. Samuel at this time is believed he's roughly 11 to 12 years old. This preteen boy, wet behind the ears as the saying goes, is epitomizing precisely what God is looking for in the hearts of every, one, every single one of us here this morning. Namely, faithful surrender. Samuel was surrendered to the Lord. He was surrendered to Jehovah. 
Even in an environment that has such disregard for the things of God's word, for God's holiness itself. Samuel is an example of spiritual maturity and God honoring faithfulness and Christian surrender. This young boy. In all of these uh, hatred or hateful circumstances, these uh, spiritually listless circumstances, Samuel is surrendered. Which I think speaks to us this morning. You see, because despite all of the the inconvenient timing and the unpleasant circumstances that surround us. Despite all that appears dismal and dark and gloomy and dispirited. We are called by God and I would even say given the grace of God to surrender all to Jesus as the hymn says. And this I think we can see in three ways which I want to run through this morning quickly. Three ways in which Samuel surrenders, which I think also evidences this faithful surrender that ought to epitomize us. Notice in verses 1 through 10, here we have firstly, surrender to the little things. Surrender to the little things. Notice verse 1 again, and the child Samuel ministered unto the Lord before Eli. And the word of the Lord was precious in those days, there was no open vision And it came to pass at that time when Eli was laid down in his place and his eyes began to wax dim that he could not see. And before the lamp of God went out in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was and Samuel was laid down to sleep that the Lord called Samuel and he answered here am I. And he ran unto Eli and said here am I for thou callest me. And he said I called not lie down again. And he went and lay down again. And the Lord called yet again Samuel and Samuel arose and went to Eli and said here am I. For thou didst call me. And he answered, I called not. My son, lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. Neither was the word of the Lord yet revealed unto him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time. And he rose and went to Eli and said, Here am I, for thou didst call me. And Eli perceived that the Lord had called the child. Therefore Eli said unto Samuel, Go, lie down. And it shall be, if he call thee, that thou shalt say, Speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And the Lord came and stood and called as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. Then Samuel answered, speak for thy servant heareth. These verses, there's several things that we ought to be, uh, sort of have our attentions drawn towards here in these first ten verses of this chapter. But namely, there's a sense in which there's some little evidences of surrender that I actually think give us a large sense of the surrender that lies in Samuel's heart. Notice, He rises from sleep three times in the middle of the night as his name is called. Each time he goes before the the priest Eli. When he hears his name sort of pierce the silence of the night we might say. He he waits to attend to whatever his teacher needs. Whatever he needs in the middle of the night. Perhaps this was an occurrence that was not sort of rare in, in in Samuel's life. Eli at this, at this time is an older man, a, a man who was, yes, aged, who was waxing on in years. Perhaps he was weak and perhaps there was many times in which his name would call out in the middle of the night. Samuel would run to his priest, his master, his teacher. Patiently ready to surrender to the things of God. Let me just be honest with you, I don't think that would be me. <laughs> in the middle of the night, <laughs> getting up. And waiting on this person who calls you. Because the first time it would be excusable, right? Oh, 
I thought you, I thought you called my name. I, I would swear that you, that you called me. Okay, I'll go back to bed. And then you come up the second time. Well, that's really annoying because I, I really am sure. I'm really sure that I heard a voice and it sounded like yours. And it sounded like it was coming from your room, but okay. And the third time, it would be, are you serious right now? <laughs> I, you have to be playing a prank on me. You have to be pulling the wool over my eyes or something because this has to stop. <laughs> I need to get some sleep. Samuel, though, doesn't escalate. <laughs> you notice that he doesn't escalate in his response to this aged priest. Each time he, re- he responds rightly in surrendering to whatever his, this priest has him to do. Here am I. I'm ready to serve. I'm ready to surrender to what you would have me do and accomplish. Notwithstanding how inconvenient it is. And notice that's the, another thing that jumped out to me is that he runs to Eli. Did you notice that in verse 5? The Lord called Samuel and he answered, here am I. And he ran unto Eli. I don't think I could do that in the middle of the night. <laughs> I certainly wouldn't do it on the third time. I wouldn't be meeting that sort of call to surrender with the same amount of willingness and eagerness that here Samuel is evidencing. But this is Samuel's heart. He was eager to surrender to the things of God. Here I am. Tell me how I can serve you. Tell me how I can minister to you. And here Eli perhaps remarkably perceives that something is going on. He's obviously not calling the boy in. Something is going on spiritually, supernaturally. And so he tells him that this is a call of God. So wait, and when it happens again, you say, speak for your servant heareth. And this is precisely what Samuel does. It says in verse 10, And the Lord came and stood and called, as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. Then Samuel answers, Speak, for thy servant heareth. Samuel returns to his bed, and he's visited by the Lord himself. Just stop and think about that. This isn't a dream. This isn't a vision. This isn't a hallucination. He is not having some sort of lucid dreaming moment. The Lord came and stood in Samuel's room. The physical, tangible presence of God is here in Samuel's bedroom. (laughs) It's like what we looked at a couple weeks ago out of Genesis 32. With the, the supposed mysterious wrestler who is wrestling with Jacob. Who we identified as Jesus. Who is always the embodiment of God in fleshly form. And here we have it again. A theophany, to use a big, big word. A, a physical presence of God appearing before Samuel. And it's calling him by name Samuel. Samuel. He's here. Calling out Samuel's name and such is what brings on this declaration of surrender. Speak for thy servant heareth. You know what I admire? (laughs) That Samuel surrenders before he even knows what is being required of him. Before he's even sort of getting the details of what he's supposedly surrendering to, he evidences this readiness to serve, this readiness for whatever that might be. Here I am, God. I am ready to do whatever you would have me to do. 
These are the little things. <laughs> this willingness, this eagerness, this readiness that God was preparing in Samuel for the things that he had in store. And how unlike us this is. I'll just I'll put it personally. How unlike me this is. <laughs> I I would hasten to say I would not respond the same way, I think. We'd rather know what we're getting ourselves into before we commit to it. God, I'm ready, but can you just give me your your bullet point outline of what you're hoping to accomplish, and then I can be sure that that it fits with my skill set, and my skill fits with what you're asking, and then I can know that all the details align with sort of uh, what my Enneagram number is, and make sure that I'm the one that can be best suited for what you would have me to do. We would hedge. We would want to get the details. We want to make sure that that all of this fits with who we are. That might be wise investment advice to get all the details up front, but it doesn't evidence biblical surrender, biblical faith. Because surrendering in faith means doing so without hedging. Samuel doesn't hedge anyway, like, I will do it if it fits with what I think I can do, with what I think I'm called to do. No, he surrenders without hedging. Here am I. Speak for your servant hears and I'm ready and I'm willing to do whatever you ask of me. Those little things built up and were indicative of how Samuel was surrender in the big things. (laughs) Again, the little things matter. The little moments of surrender, they have big and affecting consequences on the way that you surrender in the rest of your life. And whether you've realized it or not this morning, there is a decision that you know perhaps that is before you that will evidence your heart's surrender to the things of God. And it may seem huge or it may seem really small. But even in those small decisions, we are evidencing surrender that has big ramifications. Therefore, we have to ask ourselves, are we like Samuel here, who was imbued with this sense of faith, willingly, eagerly, and readily surrendering to God and what he would have us to do, however big or however small? Or are we waiting for more details to be revealed till we find out more of of what it's going to be like before I can commit, before I can surrender totally? I want to make sure that this is really what I have in mind and that God really does have my best intentions and best purposes at heart. Are we waiting until our circumstances improve? (laughs) Samuel was serving and ministering to the Lord through an age of spiritual darkness and blindness and deafness. He was evidencing this faith in the little things, which harkens back to what Jesus tells us in Luke 16.10, that whoever is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. (laughs) It's the tenet of scripture that holds true. And Samuel here is... Is evidencing it. He's surrendering to the little things. But notice secondly. In verses 11 through 18. This surrender to the hard things. Surrender to the hard things. Look at verse 11. And the Lord said to Samuel. So here. Again. We have the physical tangible presence of God. In the bedroom of Samuel. And here is the message. That he is giving unto this little boy minister. (laughs) Behold. 
I will do a thing. How about that for some ambiguity? (laughs) I will do a thing in Israel at which both the ears of everyone that heareth shall tingle. And in that day, I will perform against Eli all things which I have spoken concerning his house, which when I begin, I will also make an end. For I have told him that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knoweth, because his sons made themselves vile, and he restrained them not. And therefore I have sworn unto the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be purged for, with sacrifice nor offering forever. A burdensome message. A burdensome message is given to this boy minister Samuel. He's greeted by God who tells him that there's this thing he's going to do in Israel. And it's going to make everyone's ears tingle. Which is just a picturesque saying of watch out. Because what I'm going to do is going to make everyone's neck hairs stand on end. Everyone's going to get goosebumps at what I'm about to perform in their place. And he proceeds to tell him that this, the, the first part of this sort of thing he's going to accomplish involves the judgment of Eli's house. His priesthood. His ministry. His family. All would be judged with swift and severe judgment. All because his sons and he himself were so flippantly disregarding the word of God. Did you notice that? In verse 13. He says, this is part of the Lord's uh, sort of uh, censure and judgment on Eli. He says, for I have told him that I will judge his house. I have told Eli that I will judge him forever for the iniquity which he knoweth. Because his sons made themselves vile and restrained them not. Hophni and Phinehas were perhaps the real perpetrators of all the scandal and sin that had riddled Shiloh at this point. But notice where the blame falls. Falls on Eli's shoulders. Because he knew about it and he didn't do anything about it. He knew of what they were doing and he restrains them not. He fails as both a father and a priest, as a minister of the Lord. And Samuel hears this message. This message of judgment. This message of unflinching righteousness being performed in Eli's house. And notice what happens. Verse 15, as Samuel lay until the morning, I doubt he got any sleep. (laughs) And opened the doors of the house of the Lord. And Samuel feared to show Eli the vision. He was dreading at all possible costs. I don't want to relay this message to my teacher. I am fearing to do it. I am dreading that I have to tell him this. (laughs) Rightly so. But Eli presses Samuel. Notice verse 16. Then Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he answered, here am I. And he said, what is the thing that the Lord hath said unto thee? I pray thee, hide it not from me. God do so to thee, and more also, if thou hide anything from me, of all the things that he said unto thee. And Samuel told him every whit, and hid nothing from him. And he said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seemeth him good. Eli presses and urges him to tell him whatever God had relayed to him. What was the message? And there's such a sense of resignation in Eli here. You can hear it. Let it be. Whatever the message is. And after he hears it, he says, he says it is the Lord. 
Let him do what seemeth him good. He has resigned himself almost to the fate that he has made for himself. You can hear it in those words. But put yourself in Samuel's shoes for a moment. Think about this moment for Samuel. A young boy, 12-ish years of age, growing up in the house of Eli, serving the Lord, ministering in this tabernacle at Shiloh. And the first message of prophecy that he is given by God to deliver to the people of God is one of impending judgment on his mentor and his entire family. This is the message I have for you. Go and pronounce condemnation on the person who has served as your father figure for the whole time that you have been alive. (laughs) The one that you've ministered next to. The one that you've served beside unto the Lord. You want to talk about a hard thing to surrender yourself to. (laughs) And here is Samuel. Surrenders to the hard things. He told him every wit. Every detail he relays to Eli. I wonder this morning. What hard thing has God put before you that you have yet to surrender to? That you've yet to sort of acquiesce to the spirits tugging and nudging and pulling on your heart. It's too difficult. I dread that I have to have to do this. That God is impressing upon me to do this. To surrender to this. Are you delaying because you're fearful of what might happen? You dread what others might think of you. You see, God's word assures us that even in the hard things, his purposes are being fulfilled. They're being carried out exactly how he would intend it. I would say that it is precisely in and through those hard and difficult things that he is making his will most evident. Trust the Lord for the hard things and surrender to his word in the middle of them, even in the midst of them. This is Samuel surrendering to the little things, surrendering to the hard things. And lastly, as we close out the chapter, surrender to the new things. Notice verse 19. It says, again, that we have that phrase, and Samuel grew. And the Lord was with him and did not let, or excuse me, and did let let none of his words fall to the ground And all Israel, from Dan even to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established to be a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again in Shiloh. For the Lord revealed himself to Samuel in Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Here, this call of Samuel is no small moment. It's right that we would learn about it, even all the way back in Sunday school. Because this moment in Israel's history is a pivotal turning point. After years of silence, after decades of deafness, God was speaking again. He was speaking through his servant, through his prophet, through Samuel for all to hear. And he was speaking truth. Notice, did you catch that phrase at the end of verse 19? It says, it did let none of his words fall to the ground. (laughs) So poetic way of saying that everything that Samuel preached rang true. Like an arrow 
released from the bow and it hits his mark so sure and steady does it fly it doesn't fall to the ground by a careless archer it is one that hits his mark it rings true this is what God was doing through Samuel making all of his words ring true and it says from Dan to Beersheba does this occur Suggests that Samuel's prophecies were heard far and wide. These are the northern and southernmost points of Israel at this point in time. It's heard all around. All of the truth that Samuel is proclaiming is heard by all of Israel. That, that flickering flame of God's word would be fanned into a bright fire for all of Israel to be lit up by the prophecies of God, by the words of God himself. This is what he would do through Samuel. And he is here evidencing the surrendering to the new thing God was about to perform. And in so doing, he became perhaps the most Pivotal, most important prophet in Israel's history. He was God's faithful priest through whom Israel will be brought to repentance. That's what happens in chapter 7. And it's through Samuel that God's new thing would be revealed. Go back to verse 10. Again, I just want to settle on this point. This new, quote, thing that God is doing. Notice, the Lord came and stood and called as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. Then Samuel answered, speak for thy servant heareth. And the Lord said to Samuel, behold, I will do a thing in Israel at which both the ears of everyone will, that heareth, it shall tingle. <laughs> I'm going to do a thing, Jesus says to him. Such ambiguity in the words of the Lord that are given for Samuel to hear. I'm going to do this thing that is coming before you. But isn't that just how God works? Isn't that exactly how he works even in our own day, even in our own lives, that he doesn't always give us the details of what he is going to accomplish, of what he is going to do and how. He doesn't tell us precise little intricacies all the time. He doesn't always reveal all of the broad scope of his plan. He just assures us that it will happen. And it's going to be astounding. It's going to make your hairs stand on end. The thing I'm going to do is going to make everyone have goosebumps. (laughs) And this is further confirmed by verse 21. Where it says, And the Lord appeared again in Shiloh. For the Lord himself revealed himself to Samuel in Shiloh by the word of the Lord revealed. He uncovered, he disclosed himself to Samuel, his prophet. His plan was being revealed through his word again. God was speaking. And Samuel surrendered his life to the proclamation of this message. That, which indicates God's redemptive concern for his people. Samuel is known as the prophet of repentance. Because he brings so many to their knees. You see Israel would not be left leaderless. 
Israel would not be left listless in, in, in sort of the doldrums of faith and spirituality. They would not be lost for, for too long precisely because God was working even while Israel was turning a blind eye to him. God was moving and he was going to raise up a faithful priest whose priesthood would be sure and everlasting. Go with me really quickly and I'll close with this. And at the end of chapter 2. Eli, in fact, did know about the judgment that was going to come on his house. Because he's met by a mysterious man of God who goes unnamed in this entire ending portion of the chapter. And at the end, as this judgment is being pronounced unto him by this unnamed messenger, notice verse 35. This messenger is relaying a message from God and he says, I will raise me up a faithful priest. That shall do according to that which is in mine heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house. And he shall walk before mine anointed forever. Who could that be? Whose priesthood is sure and everlasting? Who is the only one that does perfectly the will of the Father? Who is the only one who serves as the great high priest for all to hear forever? It is Jesus. Even here, right before the lamp of God goes out and all of Israel's spiritual darkness comes over, God would do a thing. God would raise up a priest for Israel who would be perfectly surrendered to his will. It would be Jesus Christ, the Son of God, our great high priest. You see, this is the wonderful revelation that we've been given. Because no matter what our present circumstances may look like, no matter how dark and how dreary and how dismal and how gloomy it may feel right now, we have all the reason in the world to surrender to what God is doing. Because there's one thing that we do know. (laughs) I don't know all of what the end times hold. What the plans are, who it's going to involve. But I know one thing, Jesus wins. Jesus wins. So regardless of what happens here and now, I know the end. I can be fully surrendered now because it doesn't matter what happens in the present. I know the future is secure. I can surrender to the new thing that he's doing no matter what it may look like. I just got goosebumps. (laughs) Because God's doing a thing. (laughs) It's going to make everyone's hair stand on end. He's going to do something that's going to give the world goosebumps. You know what it involves? It involves Jesus returning. Not this time as a baby, but as the king riding on his horse, on his stallion, with all of his army in tow. And he's going to come back and rule and reign forever. That's what he's doing. So even in the little things we can surrender, even in the hard things we can surrender, even in the new things we can surrender to what God is doing. That's challenging. That takes a lot of faith. Luckily we have this book called the Bible, which says, I believe, help my unbelief. 
I wonder this morning, what part of your life have you sort of segregated and not allowed God to infiltrate? What part of your life remains unsurrendered to what he's doing? Because you're afraid, you're, you're fearful of what that might mean. Where have you hedged in your surrendering to God? I'm going to surrender, but as long as I see something else occur first, I'll give you everything, but just not this part yet. I want to see something else first. Are you allowing the present conditions of our day and age to deter you from declaring like Samuel, here am I. I pray this morning that the Spirit would work on you. That we could say, along with that wonderful hymn, all to Jesus I surrender. All to the great high priest I surrender. All to the king I surrender. Here am I. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes.